from the rich book of Galatians. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible and you want to turn there, we're in chapter 3. And if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 1220. I'll be starting with Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. afternoon. You found on your pew when you arrived another invitation card for the sermon series beginning in January, Wind Chasers and Worshippers. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is a series through the book of Ecclesiastes that is specially designed uh, for people who are wondering about the meaning of life, and that pretty much applies to all of us. Uh, there is all around us and within us a vacuum that human beings find and face as they try to deal with the reality of life. And Ecclesiastes is written to answer that need. You'll look at the uh, sermon titles, Chasing the Wind, The Trouble with Whining, and that's not a typo, it's meant to be with a Y. The Trouble with Whining, In Search of the Eternal Buzz, Shark Tank Madness, Religioso rigor mortis, what mirrors won't tell, echoes of eternity, mysterium tremendum, who's your boss, glimpses of Eden. Uh, these, are, these are messages that are going to be designed to really connect to our hearts. So whether it's a teenager who 
is having his or her doubts, whether it's a college-age student who is struggling to find answers, whether it's the frazzled and hassled mom at home with the kids who's wondering if this is what life is all about, whether it's the addict who is trying to break free, whoever it is, um, there is meaning and there is purpose and that is found in God. Are we wind chasers chasing after meaningless things or are we worshipers, those who are willing to bow our knees before the living God? That'll be the focus of that message. Please get the word out. Please uh, feel free to take that card that was uh, in the pew, and there are many more in the back as well, and uh, hand them out as you see fit. Galatians chapter 3. We return to our two-part series called The Death of Man and the Birth of God. I, I... I wonder, I was thinking about this this week, I wonder what kind of person you are. Are you a good news, bad news type of person or a bad news, good news type of person? Which do you prefer? Hearing the good news first and then the bad or the bad news first and then the good? I have often said that as far as the Christian faith is concerned, it is you need to hear the bad news first in order for the good news to make any sense. You need to hear the bad news of sin and righteousness and wrath and judgment and hell before you're ever going to see any need for the good news of forgiveness and mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. And, and in many ways, I stand by that claim that I've made many times through the years. But as I've thought about it, I, I do think that it is perhaps a bit better to say that Christianity is a good news, bad news, good news reality. The good news is, as we heard a couple of weeks ago, that God made man majestic in great glory and love. That's, that's some seriously good news. God made human beings to be majestic. He made human beings in his image, a shadow or a reflection of God himself, a moral, relational, intellectual mirror of himself. God made us so that God could cast, if you will, cast his shadow over all the earth. And as the image bearers of God, we were made to reflect God's being, we were made to rule God's creation, and we were made to relate to God's person. That is, that is good news that distinguishes us from every other creature in, in the cosmos. We are uniquely made in the image of God. But there is bad news. After Genesis 1 and 2 was Genesis 3. There was the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Rather than being content, being like God, they wanted to be God, and humans have ever since been in the pursuit of being God. And that bad news of sin has led to all kinds of misery. The world is full of the effects, the tragic effects, of human rebellion against God. And it is the, these effects are both here and now, and they are eternal. They will go on forever for many, many human beings. It is bad news, but there is good news after the bad news. 
And that good news is that God became man to restore our majestic glory and love through heroic sacrifice and grace. God became man. God became one of us to restore our majestic glory and to restore us into his great love through heroic sacrifice and grace. That's the message of Galatians chapter 4. It's a great <coughs> message of this text. This, this is a Christmas text. You didn't know it's tough. there was a Christmas text in Galatians. Uh, but this is a Christmas text. This is one of the best Christmas texts that you will find. It is theologically rich. It is a text that refers to Jesus who was born of a woman. Born of a woman. So that he might redeem us and restore us to our glory. Here's, here's what this text teaches us. Christmas. Christmas initiated... A heroic rescue operation by which God in Jesus Christ redeemed us from our fallen condition and restores us to our former glory. And this should cause our heads to bow and our feet to dance. Christmas initiates a heroic rescue operation by which God in Jesus Christ redeemed us from our fallen condition and restores us to our former glory. And yes, this should make our heads bow and this should make our feet dance. Let's hear it from the text. I'm going to give to you three main points. The when of Christmas, the who of Christmas, and the why of Christmas. Pretty simple here. First, the when of Christmas. Verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. When the fullness of time had come. What that means, folks, is that God had a plan. God knew what he was going to do as soon as Adam and Eve sinned. God has never been without a plan. Side note for all of your life, God always has a plan. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, God always has a plan. And there's always a fullness of time. There's, there's always that moment coming when God delivers, God rescues, God helps you to see what the plan is all about. But God has had a plan of redemption and restoration since the beginning of time. So in Genesis 2... Uh, God makes man majestic in glory and grace in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin, and God says, I have a plan. The offspring of the woman will crush Satan's head. Way back in Genesis 3, the first Christmas text, the offspring, the child of the woman, is going to come and, and his his heel is going to be crushed, he is going to be wounded, he is going to be killed, but he is going to crush Satan's head. He is going to rise up from apparent defeat and destroy the enemy. And so God initiated this plan, and as you follow through the Old Testament, you just see this plan referred to 
over and over again, and there are different ways that, that God predicts it and God foreshadows it. So you have in Genesis 22, where Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac, and there's this lamb in the thicket, and God says, I have provided a lamb for you, meant to let us know that, that when sacrifice for sin happens, God will provide a lamb. And then there's the Passover lamb, God passing over his people because the blood of the lamb was on the doorpost. And, and then there are the prophecies of Isaiah that a lamb would come who would, who would be slaughtered for the sins of his people. Over and over again, God predicts and foreshadows that the day is coming. The day is coming when a redeemer will appear, when a savior will appear. And just over 2,000 years ago, on the first Christmas night, the fullness of time arrived. The fullness of time arrived. The first Christmas night, the moment in history when God's plan came into action, God sent forth his son born of a woman. That's the, that's the when of Christmas. Now let's look at the who. The who of Christmas. And in short, I'm about to give you one of the most theologically stunning, impossible to grasp phrases that you will ever hear. Who's the who of Christmas? The God-man, Jesus Christ. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Just let that fall on your ears. The God-man, Jesus Christ. When we look at this text, we see that there is something that distinguishes Jesus from every other religious leader. And, you know, you've heard it said, maybe you even said it, all religions are basically the same. Uh, I'm not sure if you're studying the religions at all before you say that, because they are radically different, and especially at this point. There is nobody like Jesus. There is nobody who makes the claim and proves the claim to be the God-man, Jesus. There may be other gurus, there may be other teachers, there may be other prophets, there may be other preachers, there may even be other miracle workers, but there's only one God-man. There's only one Jesus. Look at it in the text. He is the God-man. We see the God part of Christ, if you will, in the phrase, God sent forth his son. His son, born of a woman. He is the son of God. Now, at first hearing, that may not sound to you like he's God, but I'm here to tell you that it's what it means. Because, see, there's different ways to use the word son. There, you can be a son by name through adoption going to hear about in just a second, all those who believe in Jesus become the sons and daughters of God by name. We're adopted into the, the family of God. But then there is the way to be a son in nature, in who you are. You know, we say sometimes, he is his father's son. What do we mean by that? He's just like his dad. Jesus is his father's Jesus is just like God because he 
He is the Son of God. It's a mystery, I know. He is God the Son. I know, I know it's hard to grasp, but let me just linger on it a little bit here. Um, because this, this is getting to the very heart of our faith. A number of years ago, I, I read John Piper's book, The Pleasures of God, and one of the chapters in that book is about God's delight in his son. And I came across this text that I'm about to read to you and realized, wow, I'm on holy ground right here. Uh, uh, it, it's deep, it'll make your head swim, but enjoy the swim, okay? Just, just enjoy it. Listen, listen as I read. So the son, in whom the father delights, is the image of God and the radiance of the glory of God. He bears the very stamp of God's nature and is the very form of God. He is equal with God and, as John says, is God. For all eternity, before creation, the only reality that has always existed is God. This is a great mystery because it is so hard for us to think of God having absolutely no beginning and just being there forever and ever and ever without anything or anyone making him be there, just absolute reality that every one of us has to reckon with whether we like it or not. But this ever-living God has not been alone. He has not been a solitary center of consciousness. There has always been another who has been one with God in essence and glory and yet distinct in personhood so that they have had a personal relationship for all eternity. The Bible teaches that this eternal God has always had a perfect image of himself, Colossians 1, a perfect radiance of his essence, Hebrews 1, a perfect stamp or imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1, a perfect form or expression of his glory, Philippians 2. We are on the brink of the ineffable here. Something that is ineffable is too great or wonderful to be put into words. I would disagree with John Piper here. We are not on the brink of the ineffable. We have jumped off the cliff into the ineffable here. But we are on the brink of the ineffable here. But perhaps we may dare to say this much. As long as God has been God eternally, he has been conscious of himself and the image that he has of himself is so perfect and so complete and so full as to be the living personal reproduction or begetting of himself. And this living personal image or radiance or form of God is God, namely God the Son. And therefore God the Son is co-eternal with God the Father and equal in essence in glory. Ha! Wow. Wow. He is God the Son. He is the God-man. He is God in the flesh. He is God in a manger. I mean, there are so many texts in Scripture that, that demonstrate and prove the deity of Christ, that he is, in fact, God. That I don't even need to go into them all, but he is the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9 and verse 6. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The point here 
is to make sure that we catch that this is what Christmas is about. You miss this, you miss the point. The one born in the manger was God the Son. In Christmas, we are not celebrating merely the birth of a baby. We are remembering the incarnation of God. This reminded me of some words of Calvin, as in Calvin and Hobbes, (laughs) not John Calvin. For those that are unfamiliar with the cultural phenomenon of Calvin and Hobbes, it's an old uh, comic strip, one of the best, if not the best ever. Calvin is a five or six year old Dennis the Menace type. Just think your most mischievous nephew or son or neighbor kid on intellectual steroids and you've got Calvin. Calvin and his stuffed tiger Hobbes have all kinds of shenanigans go on, but they love to talk theology and philosophy as well. Calvin has a problem, moral, ethical issues with the whole Santa Claus thing. Especially the part he knows when you've been bad or good. That part for the mischievous Calvin is troubling, to to say the least. So there's 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 this one strip where... um, this is the exchange. We're going we're to show you the graphic. You can't read it, but I'll read it to you. Calvin says to Hobbes, this whole Santa Claus thing doesn't make sense. Why all the secrecy? Why all the mystery? If the guy exists, why doesn't he ever show himself and prove it? And if he doesn't exist, what's the meaning of this? Hobbes says, I don't know. Isn't this a religious holiday? And Calvin says, yeah, but actually I've got the same questions about God. Ever had the same question about God? He's really there. Why didn't he show himself? Why didn't he prove it? Well, quite apart from the fact that he proves it every day through creation and your conscience by shouting his existence to you, he has come. And he has shown himself. And he has proven his existence. In Jesus. Jesus is God on earth. Jesus is God in a body. God in the flesh. You look at Jesus, you're seeing God. Study the life of Jesus and you're studying the character of God. This is what God is like. This is who God is No, Calvin, you don't have to worry about that one. Santa Claus, I can agree with you. Jesus, no, he has shown himself. God is real. God has come. And it's all recorded for us beautifully, infallibly, flawlessly in the Bible. Just read it. Just read it. Jesus is God. But Jesus is also man. Notice the text in Galatians 4. It says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Born of a woman. That's just Bible language as a human. That's what, that's what Paul means there. Born as a human. 
Genesis 3, the offspring of the woman. Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born. Luke 2, you shall find a baby lying in the manger. John 1, the word became flesh. Hebrews 2, since we share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same, being made like us in every respect. And so let's be clear here. Who is Jesus? Who is the who of Christmas? Nothing less than the incarnate God. Nothing less than God in human form. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son. He bears God's full nature and at the same time bears a full and complete human nature. The ancient creed says it with force and clarity. Listen to the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God or true God of very or true God. Begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father, by whom are all, thing, all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Amen. And God's people have been saying amen to that for centuries. Because Jesus is the God-man. Not just a man, not just God, but both. Having two natures in one person, true God and true man, without lessening his deity or diminishing either his deity or his humanity. He didn't become less God when he became man. He did not, was not less human because he was God. He didn't lose his divine nature. He didn't lose his human nature. There was a union of the two natures without becoming some kind of strange third nature. He was God-man. Right there you can understand why I said this ought to make our heads bow. Here's reason. Here's a reason to bow down. What kind of Savior do we have? Not just a good man. Not just a moral teacher. The God-man. The God-man. So why does it matter? Well, let's get to the why of Christmas. Notice with me the text. There are two purpose clauses in verse 5. In verse 4 we read, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. Number one. Two, or in order that he might redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And later he says, and as sons become heirs of God. So there are two reasons for the incarnation, two purposes that God had in mind. Number one, so that he might redeem us. Number two, so that we might be adopted as the sons and daughters and heirs of God. He came to redeem us. He came to rescue us. He came to set us free. 
He came to be a mighty deliverer. You know, I, there are certain ways in which the first Christmas night was a silent night, but there are other ways in which it wasn't silent at all. You know, you're talking about a cosmic event. You're talking about God invading time and space. You're talking about God rending the heavens, parting the cosmos, saying, I'm coming in. I'm coming in, and I'm coming to deliver. I'm coming to redeem. And notice, there was a host of angels. That word host usually refers to an army in the Bible. This wasn't an angelic choir. You know, making nice, sweet harmonies. This was a mighty, angelic host singing and shouting the triumph. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Peace. This was, this was, this was, this was a war song. This was Jesus coming to deliver. This was Jesus coming to redeem. This was Jesus coming to set his people free. This was Jesus coming to fix what we had broken. We were under the law, it says. And, and that means we were under its claims and we were under its curse. We, we are obligated to keep the law of God and yet we fail in keeping that law every day of our lives. And chapter 3 says, you fail once, you failed. You can't redeem yourself. You're under the curse of the law. But chapter 3 says, he came to bear the curse for us. He came to set us free by becoming the atonement for our sin, by becoming the sin-removing, wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sin. He came to die. He came to suffer, to bleed, to die. To set us free. To redeem us. To rescue us. And notice this. To restore us. Because what does he do? He doesn't just redeem us. Oh, hear this first. It's, it's not just that Jesus redeems us from hell and the curse of our guilt. That would be nice all by itself. Rescue from hell is a good thing. But he wasn't done there. He came to restore us to our former glory. The glory we learned about two weeks ago. Say, where do you get that in the text? Look at the text. He came, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. What's happening here is Eden is being restored. Man was made to be in the image of God. He was made, what? We learned it two weeks ago. He was made to reflect God's being, 
He was made to rule God's creation and he was made to relate to God's person. And in this text, we find out we get it all back because Christ came. We get to relate to him and to his person. How? We become sons and daughters of God. He came to redeem us so that we might become the children of God and as the children of God, be able to cry, Abba, Father. That's Eden back again. That's God walking in the garden with us again. That's restoration of intimacy and love with God. Most of you would probably know that the word Abba is, a, is an Aramaic phrase, a term that young children would make in referencing their, their fathers, similar to daddy. Similar to daddy. Uh, a number of years ago, when grandfatherhood was coming my way, uh, and uh, grandmotherhood was coming Galen's way, uh, we had to decide what our grandparent names were going to be. And as I thought about it, I, I, I felt that it had to be something that captured my grandness on the one hand, and my abiding youthfulness on the other hand. So, I mean, you really have to be, you have to be choosy in this moment. You have to be careful. You know, I didn't want to call me grandfather because that's too formal. Hey, grandfather. That doesn't work. I didn't want it to be pops because that well, that's just, just too informal. You know, my grandness is not expressed in that. And grandpa is too old. And I'm just way too young to be a grandpa. So we had to come up with something. And we decided on granddaddy and grandmommy. See, daddy and mommy, there's a lot of youth in that there. And that's just the way Galen and I are. We, we abide in our youthfulness. And we're grand at the same time. So there you have it. So, doesn't have much to do with a sermon, but it, it, it is <laughs> slightly relevant at this point. Um, we, we have terms of endearment. We have terms that speak of intimacy and affection and love. We all we do it with each other all the time. Here, here is ours. We inherit everything that God has and that God has made. We have intimacy with God and, and we inherit the wealth and the glory of God. Verse 7, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
An heir of what? An heir of all things, we're told elsewhere in Scripture. Everything that God has made that was actually, Genesis 1, made for us in the first place. I will put man on earth to have dominion over all things. Everything is now restored to us. This, this takes us back to Eden, and it tells us that we, at the end of the day, when the incarnate God is done with his redeeming work in terms of both what he did on the cross, what he's done in his resurrection, what he's now doing in his work as Lord and King on the throne, when he is done, we get it all. It is all ours in him. Listen, I just I want to give you some scriptures here. This, this, I just want you to just listen. As I read to you a number of texts that declare our future. All right? Hear these. Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus, through his incarnation and death, is, quote, leading many sons to glory. A glory that's higher than the angels. Romans 8 says, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. <laughs> that just means we have the same status in the new heavens and the new earth. We will have the same status as an heir as Jesus, the Son of God. And Paul goes on to say, we will be heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified. With him. Romans 2 says, There will be glory, honor, and immortality for all who trust in Christ. Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the meek, finish this, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's Genesis 1 and 2. God made man, put him on the earth, said it's yours. Jesus says, You're still going to get it. Still yours. Blessed are the meek, you shall inherit the earth. 2 Timothy 2, if we endure, we shall reign with him. 1 Peter 1 says that we are destined for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, and that after we've been tested for a while, it will result in praise and honor and glory for us. It's just amazing. Those are big words, folks. To describe humans. Praise, honor, and glory will belong to us. Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. Listen to this. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Or 1 Corinthians 15, and we keep going here. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed oh lord bring the day 
we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then will come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your victory, O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's Revelation 5. Worthy are you, O Lord, for you were slain and by your blood you've ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they, we shall reign on the earth. That's Genesis 1. They will have dominion on the earth. They shall reign on the earth. Daniel 7. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Daniel 12. And God's people shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Ephesians 5, he will present us to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Isaiah 60, Whereas you have been, oh, hear this, anyone here this morning who is feeling alone and forsaken. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, I will make you majestic forever and a joy from age to age. This is our future. And this is what Christmas is all about. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the curse of the law, so that they may receive adoption as sons, and if sons, heirs of God. So, would you not agree It's no wonder that the early participants in the first Christmas night, they, you know, the, the wise men, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy and they bowed and worshipped. You know, how do you hear this without feeling both? How do you hear this without standing in awe? The God-man has come and set his people free. Bow your head and worship and adore. Oh, come, let us adore him. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our man. Oh, let all mortal flesh keep silence as the old hymn puts it. And with fear and trembling, 
this is this is something that ought to make us tremble in awe and wonder. It's something that ought to make us fall on our faces. This is something that ought to fill us with awestruck. Lord, I trust and pray that God will give you some awe moments. And then may you give you some dance moments. not just rescued us from hell, but is restoring to us even and more. We're destined for glory. The children of God, we can say, Abba, Abba. And we can live with the anticipation that everything the Father has will be ours. Let's dance. Let's celebrate. Let's rejoice with great joy to the world, the Lord has come. And then, let us, having seen such wondrous things, let us make sure that we love others as we have been loved. Paul puts in 2 Corinthians that he who was rich became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. He was made low that we might be lifted high. He was, he had everything taken from him that we might receive everything. We have a choir going in the background here to worship their hands. They're singing, they're not crying, they're singing. They're rejoicing. But you know, if we have received so much at such great cost, how ought we to love each other? And how ought we to lay down our lives for each other? That's the whole point of Paul in 2 Corinthians 8. He calls on the example of Jesus and his self-impoverishing love and grace in order to motivate us to be willing to impoverish ourselves for the good of others. So this Christmas season and beyond, let us, let us have what is a true Christmas spirit, which is not just sentiment and warm fuzzies. I like sentiment and warm fuzzies because I enjoy it. But Christmas is way more than that. It is God becoming one of us. It is God impoverishing himself making himself poor that we might be made rich. May we imbibe that Christmas spirit toward one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and toward our neighbors and toward a world that is impoverished by sin and sorrow and suffering. May we be like Jesus. So let us have bowing heads, dancing feet, and giving and serving hands. And we will express Well, I'm not sure how we can move forward uh, by being overstated, but I started to say this is the alternative. How can we move forward without observing the Lord's Supper together? Uh, Jesus made himself poor. I'm going to ask the ushers if they would prepare to, to share.
contribute the elements of communion to our singing. This is not just a tack on to our worship. This is this is our way as a congregation to remember together that the God-man made himself poor for our sakes. So as, as the bread and cup are being distributed, I encourage you to bow your head. I encourage you to pray. I encourage you to reflect. I encourage you to be glad in such a wondrous Savior as we have. So let's celebrate the Lord's Supper together.